Hi, Pastor John here. We're happy to have you with us today. The story of Noah and his ark is a familiar one, isn't it? Many of us first heard it in our childhood. We all have a picture of Noah, his ark, the happy family, and cute little animals looking over the side of the boat, don't we? Could there be more? Are there profound lessons to be learned from Noah other than he was basically a good guy? How good was he? We find out in today's sermon simply titled, Noah. Let's, let's take a few minutes and just chat. Next week, we're going down to the river to join Veritas. They've got a baptism service and a picnic. Um, I'm looking forward to it. You know, they're a new church. They're young. They're excited. They've got lessons to learn. We're an old church that's excited. And we have lessons to learn too, don't we? I don't think it's any coincidence that a couple years ago, our theme was treat each other as more significant than yourselves. Make your love real. These are our opportunities to do this, folks. They need our help. They need our input. And I know for some of you it doesn't always seem that way, but it's true. True. We're part of the body of Christ. Amen? When people get baptized, they're coming into the body of Christ. We should be able to celebrate that. It's not an inconvenience. It's an opportunity to fellowship with people that think just like we do. I think it's a rare opportunity for me. And let me tell you why I'm excited about this. I know a lot of pastors. I've had the incredible privilege of mentoring maybe a dozen or so. There are very few young pastors out there that are as committed to the Word of God as Zach Ritz is. There are even fewer that are capable of communicating that to people. This is what really gets me fired up. Because I look at them and I see in every respect the future of the church. It's not going to die with our generation. Amen? We don't know what our relationship with them is going to be as we go forward, but we're going to continue to explore it. And maybe someday we have a closer relationship than we do right now. That's further down the road. No decisions have been made. We're just talking. And now we have the opportunity to fellowship. So I want to encourage you next Sunday, make a side dish. Bring a couple of chairs. Let's go down and celebrate the kingdom of God together at the river. And then we'll meet the Sunday after here. We'll do what we always do. We'll worship God together and share the word of God. Amen? Amen. So I hope you'll be able to join me. If you have any questions, let me know. You'll need a chair. Side dish is, is a good idea, but it's not absolutely vital. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. Oh my, he's still in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 9. Let me, let me tell you about my, my best friend, Sam, back in Youngstown, Ohio. We... We were the only, I mean, just to show you how much times have changed, we were the only two only children in our neighborhood. So we, we grew up close to each other. We were maybe the only ones that understood each other. By the time we got to high school, Sam was six foot three, huge guy in 10th grade, uh, and the football coach recruited him. They went to a different school than I did. But Sam went out, he came to me and he said, well, what about this football thing? I said, I think you got to try out. I think it looked like it'd be a lot of fun. I mean, you know, all the girls like the football players, don't they? So I tried out, 
And the coach went to him after his tryout, and he said, you're not going to make the team. And Sam said, why not? You're not good enough. He was devastated. He came to me, he said, I'm not good enough. I said, oh, you don't need to be on that football team anyway today. You know, you don't, you don't really need that. You're better than, and I tried to be his good friend and, and compliment him. But what I've come to realize as I've gotten older and bumped my head against things several times and stumbled several more times, none of us are good enough. None of us are good enough. Now hold on to that thought as we look at Noah. And, and so the story of Noah starts in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. They get ejected from the garden. And, and they begin to multiply and spread out. And that's kind of where the problems start, aren't they? Problems arise. And, and we're going to see the result of those problems in the story of Noah. We're going to take a look at Noah's character in Genesis 6, 1 through 13. We will take a look at Noah's ark in 7 through 16, pardon me, Genesis 6, 14 through 7, 16. And I, I just want you to stop for a moment and read your own mind and see what you were thinking when I said Noah's Ark. Because we all have a picture in our heads, don't we? We'll get to that. We'll see Noah's flood in Genesis 7, 17 through 8, 12. And then we'll see Noah's brand new world in Genesis 8:15 through 9:29, so a lot of a lot of ground to cover. Uh, my prayer has been that I'll be able to cover it with some clarity for you. So let's take a look at Noah's character. Genesis 6, starting with verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then we see this in verse 8. Noah found favor with God. In verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, there are very few people that are called righteous by the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. Noah is one of them. And he walked with God, the verse says. So here's what we're supposed to see in these passages. Uh, Adam and Eve have produced a sinful race. It started all the way back in the garden when it got ejected. There's only one good guy among the entire human race by the time we get to Noah's time. One man who was as righteous as a man can get. Now, we need to understand what type of righteousness we're talking about here uh, because this is a human type of righteousness, which is an imperfect and unholy righteousness. It's really what we're supposed to see is Noah's as good as it gets. He's a good guy, but we're going to find out that he's not a perfect guy. So Noah is as good as it gets among human beings. Then in Genesis 6:11 we see this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. How about that? That's all the way back in Noah's time. They didn't even have the internet to know this. Verse 12, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, God speaking to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Uh Uh-oh, 
Noah's like, oh, <laughs> what's going on here? God's going to flood the earth. But, but we find out that he's going to spare Noah. And we've got to be careful with this. It, he's not sparing Noah because he's holy and good. He is as good as anyone can get. But as we're going to see, he's not good enough. Noah's character is sparkling. If, if he was walking down the street, we would look at him and say, he's a pretty good guy. But what we're going to find out is that however good Noah is, it's not good enough to save him. It's not good enough for, to rescue him from the wrath that's coming. So Noah's character is great. Let's take a look at Noah's ark. Verse 14, God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. There's a whole bunch of life lessons we can get from that. We'll do that some other time. God gives Noah the blueprints for the ark and tells him that he's going to establish a covenant between Noah uh, and his family and God. And the ark. How many of you guys have been to the ark encounter? Several people. You know, we, we just need to do a trip to the ark encounter, don't we? We'll look into that. It's, it's a wonder of engineering, even by today's standards. And the ark will sustain Noah and his family and a large number of animals during the most violent weather event in history. The world has never seen what's coming. By all archaeological evidence, there was no boat building back then. I mean... If you take a look at the history of boat building, uh, the Phoenicians and the Egyptians began to rise up almost immediately after Noah's time. So God's got these plans for this large boat. Noah doesn't even know what a boat is. I mean, look where he lives. He's in the middle of the wilderness. Okay? So Noah becomes the first shipbuilder in all of history. God gave him the plans. The ark is designed to accommodate two of everything, every, every sort of living thing, it says in verse 19 of Genesis 6. And every sort of food that is eaten, we see in verse 21. Noah did it all just as God had commanded him. In Genesis 7, God tells Noah to get in the ark, take seven pairs of all clean and, and unclean animals and birds, and this seems to be on top of what we already heard. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that even at that time, this is before the law, before the sacrifices and everything, there was this concept of clean and unclean animals. Where did that come from? Well, uh, again, by archaeological evidence, we see that there were cults, there were false religions, people that were worshiping pagan gods, uh, and the, the concept of sacrifice had risen up. And in virtually every small cult, the sacrifice had to be a clean animal. And so God's saying, well, you know, you're going to take them all. You're going to take clean and unclean. It, I mean, if there was something wrong with unclean animals, this would have been God's opportunity to get rid of them. But he says, we're going to have everybody. So it, 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 the guidelines begin to change everything that we look at as far as what's around us. They're clean and unclean categories. And they're, they're, again, they're not for dietary purposes. Uh, they're for purposes of, of cultural uh, cult sacrifice. Uh, eating meat is not part of that world back in that day. 
That's not going to happen until after the flood. So they've got plenty of animals for sacrifice if they need them, but we'll find out that the sacrifice is going to be a different type of sacrifice. So we don't want to make too much of all the numbers we see here. We see seven of this. We see 40 pops up seven times. Uh, the number seven pops up four times in all this. Uh, and, and the numbers are there, rather than to give us strict guidelines, the numbers are there to show that there are appointed times set by God, which are the 40-day periods. Uh, the seven is a, a symbol of perfection. This is the right number, seven. Uh, so I don't know that you could go to the ark and go, oh, we got seven of each of these. Uh, it, it's just God's given them guidelines, and he's fulfilling them. They're not numerical boundaries. So the ark fills up. And the rains begin. And then we see this in, in verse 16 of chapter 7. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I don't know exactly what that was like, but the sound of that door closing, knowing what was going to happen, had to be an incredible moment. The rains are falling. You know, and, and by then, there's no doubt. I mean, Noah's building this ark out in his front yard. Lumber's all over the place. The neighbor's are like, what are you doing, Noah? Building an ark. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> it's a big boat. I don't even know what a boat is. Why are you building an ark? God's going to bring rain. Everybody's going to die. Uh-huh. But then the rain starts. And, and look at that door. Noah doesn't close the door. God does. God seals the door. God's moving in an incredible fashion here. And all of a sudden, it's Noah and his family and some animals in this ark, and they're sealed in. Wow. Well, that takes us to Noah's flood. Genesis 7, 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 30 feet. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. So the breath that God gave Adam when he breathed life into him is now lost under the waves and the wind. Creation's being undone and reestablished. And all of creation, once again, boils down to one man and his family. That's all that's left. Floating on a fragile wooden ship in a world, in a world that has no land. Wow. You think about that? Yeah, yeah I've read all these theories. Oh, it was regional... At just a little area. I don't know how you take water 30 feet above the top of the mountains and make it regional. 
There's, oh, there's all sorts of theories about there were the waters above and the waters below and the waters above came down. That may be true. All I know is God said the entire world got covered with water. And I don't know what it looked like, but I believe it happened. And I believe that those people in that ark were terrified. The wind is blowing. The ark is creaking. Probably had a leak here and there. And by then, by then they realize that without the ark, they're dead. This thing doesn't hold up. We're going to die too. You ever find yourself in a position where you doubt God's promises? I mean, we get in those areas, don't we? We have times in our life when we know what God promises us, but it's just kind of hard for us to grasp them. That's where Noah and his family is. And the kids are looking at him going, Dad, are you sure this is going to work? And he's looking at his kids and his wife and going, yeah, I, I, I think so. That's conjecture on my part. The text doesn't say that, but I think it's natural to have some fear when the world around you is falling apart. Verse 23, He, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. They were blotted out from the earth. The language is very precise. Genesis 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth. Notice where all the action is coming from. It's coming from God. And the water subsided. Fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters, the waters are there for 150 days. And it tells us God remembered Noah. It's not like God was sitting on the throne going, oh, wait a minute, Noah. I'm sorry, Noah, I forgot about you. The, the tense here is ongoing action. God was keeping in mind every moment. Noah, keeping in mind the promises he had made to him, keeping in mind the fact that God had a plan for this world and that it involved Noah and his family. God didn't forget Noah. He was remembering him. Now, Noah finds out that the rains have stopped, the wind is blowing, the waters are receding, and all of a sudden, he and his family realize they're not going to spend the rest of their life on this, this ark but they are totally unable to get themselves out of the situation, totally dependent upon God doing something to remedy their circumstances. And God acts. God restrains the rain. He moves the water by just blowing them away. And Noah and his family have no choice other than to obediently wait for God to do what He promised to do. Could we benefit from that? How many times do we find ourselves in a situation where we feel desperate to do something regardless of the promises God has given us? Noah has no choice but to wait. It doesn't mean that he wasn't anxious. It doesn't mean that he didn't get a little antsy. It doesn't mean that, that they didn't have hard times when they were all cooped up in this ark. Got animals. Can you imagine the odor? Food all over the place. 150 days. 
but they have to wait. So here's a, here's a timeline of the flood. Watch where we get this from. The rain started, Genesis 7, uh, 7 verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month. This is why God gives us this information so that we can make sense out of it. So the rain started in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month. The, Noah emerges from the ark, Genesis 8:13, in the 601st year, in the first month of the first day of the month. Noah's flood lasts ten and a half months. The world is forever changed. Everyone and everything that lived on land is gone. Now, see, here's the part they never told me in Sunday school about Noah. They never told me about the people that might have wanted to get in the ark. They never mentioned floating bodies. They never mentioned to me that when Noah and his family stepped off the ark, in the first town they came through, everybody was dead. Noah is absolutely surrounded by the evidence of the consequences of sin. An ever-present reminder of what happens when you rebel against God. So Noah's first steps into the world are sobering. That's part of Noah's new world. Starting in verse 15, Then God said to Noah, God speaks directly to him again, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. They may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. I, I wish they would have left the mosquitoes out. Yeah. But this, this is the new creation. This is the new start. He even quotes from Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. God keeps telling him that. Be fruitful and multiply. Noah's a godly man, and his job now is to repopulate the entire earth. He knows that he's been spared of this fate. He knows that God has exhibited grace towards him. So the first thing that he does, because he's a godly man, is he builds an altar. He builds an altar, and he makes a series of sacrifices. He worships God. And that pleases God. God promises never to bring this manner of destruction upon the earth again. And Genesis 9 describes what this new world and living in it is going to be like. It begins with a reiteration of the command to be fruitful. And then adds a measure of God's protection in Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So Noah receives dominion over the earth the same way that Adam did. And then God moved from there to new dietary guidelines. Up till now, men were eating plants. That's what God gave them to eat. But in verse 3, it allows animals to be used for food. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So there are guidelines. Now, they've kind of removed the guidelines on what not to eat. But there are still guidelines in place on how to eat it. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, if a beast 
kills you, that God will recompense. If a man kills you, there will be a reckoning. From this fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And this becomes one of the bases for the Ten Commandments, as we see them in Deuteronomy. And you, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that keeps on popping up, doesn't it? Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God makes a promise to Noah and his sons that he's never going to destroy everything by water again, and he gives them a sign. And what's the sign? There's a rainbow. It's a rainbow. Kelly and I were in France several years ago. We were looking at the Eiffel Tower, and it had just rained, and right behind the Eiffel Tower there's a rainbow. And Kelly looked at me, she goes, God's promise. That's what we need to be thinking about when we see a rainbow. God's promise. He's never going to flood the earth again. Verse 18, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Yeah, that Canaan, long before Canaan was ever settled. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now watch what just happened. Everything was made new. It's a new start for mankind. Fresh start for Noah and his family. They're going to repopulate the earth. Noah gets drunk. Don't make too much of that. Because... The main point of the story is not that Noah gets inebriated. Noah gets drunk, and his youngest son, who sees him, runs to tell his brothers, you should see what I just saw. Dad doesn't have any clothes on. Now, shame and honor. One of the great disgraces in life, even back in Noah's time, was to be seen unclothed. And an even greater shame was to look at somebody unclothed. And that's exactly what Noah's son does. Not only looks, he goes and says, come on, take a look at this. You've got to see what's going on. It's shameful to expose yourself. More disgraceful to, for someone to point it out. Ham is disgracing his father. He is disparaging his family. As a matter of fact, at this particular point, he has dishonored everybody in the world. Everyone. Not a whole lot of people, but everyone. Look how, look how the brothers react. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now we all know how that eventually turns out, don't we? Canaan would go on to settle Israel, the promised land. 
They were there when God's people got there. So Canaan settles in Israel long before it becomes Israel. And Canaan becomes a symbol in the Bible of godless and evil people. So much so that God says of Canaan to Joshua, kill everybody. And for those that you don't kill, make them your what? Servants. It starts all the way back there. Right after they get off the ark. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. He had really good medical coverage. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I love what happens when the the pillars in the Bible die. There's no death scene. (laughs) Oh, he died. I I mean, you you know, you look at Moses and Aaron. God tells them when and where they're going to die. Just go up here, do this, and then you're going to die. And what do they do? They do it. They do it. So death death is not a big issue for godly people and people that God is working through because they know where they're going. Amen? Okay, for us it's like, oh no, he died. I I think Lazarus, I, I, I love that moment when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Because I'm pretty sure Lazarus sitting in the tomb going, no, this is great. Let me hear. No, I've got something for you to do. Come on out. So Noah died. He, he just died. So the fresh start, the reboot of all creation very quickly becomes just another case of someone disobeying and disrespecting the Father. And it has long-term impact. So as new as the world is, not much changes. And as technologically advanced as the world is today, there's still not much that has changed. So we see Noah's character. He's a good, godly man. He's good as godly as men get. And ultimately, what we find out is he's just a man. He has his moments of weakness. It's probably a mistake to get inebriated, but goes on and he dies without much fanfare. We saw Noah's Ark. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Because I, I, I mentioned when I, when I first talked about it, I said, what, what were you thinking about? You know, the picture that comes to my mind is a little bit of cartoonish. Noah's on what looks like a boat. He's looking over the edge. He's got a long white beard. There's a bird flying in the background. Fuzzy little animals looking over the edge of the boat. They're all smiling. I mean, it's just very, very benign, very cute. But the ark, the ark is a gift from God. It's a gift of grace. The ark is Noah's only hope of salvation. And it is meticulously designed. Nobody had ever seen a design like this, probably never seen a design like that since. And, and, and it's challenging to build this ark, but God knows Noah's limitations, and he hasn't asked him to do anything that's beyond his technology, beyond his capability. So the ark is amazing. The flood, the flood comes upon everyone and everything. There is no escaping the flood. There's nowhere to hide other than the ark. And then we see Noah's new world. It's thoroughly cleansed. 
It looks pretty good for the most part. But it's not perfect. And again, everywhere, Noah goes, there are reminders of the consequences of what happens when you disobey God. Even, even in his own son. It would, take, it would take a perfect son to make everything right. And there were no perfect people, not even Noah. So, so here's, here's some practical lessons we can learn of this. We need, to, we need to read the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to obey. We need to hear His Word and obey it. The people of Noah's time forgot, didn't they? They forgot. They knew the story of Adam and Eve, but they forgot the whole thing, or maybe they just ignored it. They didn't think God was serious enough about sin that he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, but now they're living there, and this is not so bad. It's not so bad. They didn't think God would ever vent his wrath on them for disobeying him. Does that describe the world today? Look, oh, that's not my God. Oh, no, you know, I don't believe in that. I could never worship a God that does this or does that or so on and so forth. And, and with no regard for the wrath that's about to fall on them. We don't talk about wrath. It's not culturally acceptable. But it's coming. And it's going to be far worse than any flood has ever seen. But the world doesn't believe it. It's the same thing back then. No consequences. Adam and Eve only got kicked out of the garden in Noah's time. Everyone but one guy who tried his best to obey God, everyone but that one guy died horribly. So we should hear and obey the Word of God. And we should not only hear and obey the, the Word of God, but we should hear and obey in detail. The Word of God is over 2,000 years old. And it was as valid and true today as it was back then. It hasn't gotten old-fashioned. It hasn't gone out of style. We don't get to play with it. We don't get to, to, to edit it. We don't get to disregard any of it. We don't, listen, we don't get to redesign the ark. We don't get to redefine rain and water. Oh, that didn't mean that. That means this. We're going to change everything. They've had it wrong since inception of creation. And somehow this generation has got it right. That's the mistake they made in Noah's time. We've got this right. We don't get to redefine truth. We don't get to redefine God. Okay, those are good practical lessons. Amen? What do we learn about the character and nature of God? What do we learn about His perfect plan of redemption here? First, the very first thing we find out is there's no escaping God's wrath. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nothing you can do in and of yourself to save yourself. Isn't that what we just learned in Noah's story? Noah was not good enough to save himself. He needed the ark. He needed to only give way to God. And then he needed the only way that God gave for salvation. The only way that God gave for anyone to survive the flood, to survive the outpouring of his wrath. And that was a gift of grace. And now all Noah had to do was obey the Word of God. And he did. And once he obeyed the Word of God, watch this, God sealed him into that method of salvation. God sealed the door. 
I think it's really important to understand that God closed and sealed the door. Noah did. It's a shadow of our only means of salvation. Jesus Christ. It points towards Him. The only way to survive the wrath to come is to be in Him. Our perfect ark. And if we're in Him, if we've obeyed God, we are sealed, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We're sealed. Apart from Christ, we, like Noah, are unable to save ourselves. None of us are even as righteous as Noah was. None of us are good enough. Sam didn't play football in high school. He wasn't good enough. We had a lot of fun watching the team that was from his high school that year because they lost every game they played. So much for a coach that would encourage everybody, huh? And neither one of us realized Sam, Sam contracted a neuromuscular disease in his mid-40s and uh, called me and I went to Youngstown to spend some time with him and uh, I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. Whether or not he received it between him and the Lord. But neither one of us realized that that coach was actually doing him a favor back then. It hurt. It wasn't easy. But the truth that the coach gave him actually can free us here today if we understand what it means. Particularly in our light of relationship with Jesus Christ. It means that we don't have to perform. It means that we don't have to be perfect. No one is. No one can perform enough to gain God's favor. Even Noah fell short. And we know that Noah fell short because he needed the ark. He needed God's grace in order to survive the flood. Just as much as we need Jesus Christ. God sent His only Son to be our ark. To be our salvation. And all we have to do is obey His commandment to call Him Christ and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks that You've given us a way to be saved. We give You praise, Father, that You've given us a way to be delivered from the wrath to come. Oh, Lord, give us a vision for that. That that might be on our hearts and on our lips. That there might be an urgency in us, Father, to say that there's something far worse than a flood coming. God has promised that He will destroy this world in fire. And His promises are true. And He is faithful to walk them through. Oh, but Lord, You've given us the way of salvation. You've given us the perfect ark in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to embrace that for all that we are. Help us, O oh Lord, to let that be the testimony of our lives and our lips and our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. 
click on the like button below, that little thumbs up icon. If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd be blessed by that. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter at WBFVA. And we're also on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving and follow the links from there. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in historic downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.